0: But so these different kinds of interactions are a way to govern and be able to solve problems in a way that uh, can be more uniquely tailored to individual communities. So uh, another way to think about it is it's about sharing power from the ground up rather than power always coming from the top down.
1: and welcome to another episode of the Essential Scholars podcast. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Lemke about Nobel Prize winning economist, Eleanor Ostrom. Dr. Lemke is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a senior fellow in the F.A. Hayek program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics. Her specialization is in public choice economics, constitutional political economy, and the political economy of women's rights. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I mean, are you kidding me?
0: I hope everybody listening knows uh, how much of a game changer you are, Rosie, and all the work that you've done to bring women into discussions of economic freedom. It's just incredible. So to be able to be here and be a little part of your project today, and it's just so exciting for me.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of your work. And I know we're both pretty big fans of Eleanor Ohlstrom. Um, So I want to know um, just a little bit about Eleanor's background, her training. because She's a really fascinating character.
0: She is. She is. Um, so Eleanor grew up in the Great Depression and during the First World War. So she was familiar with Tough decisions from a very young age. Like one of her family grew a victory garden uh, during World War II to help combat food scarcity in her community. So I think just living through the period of time that she did, and also having to fight for the opportunities and recognition that she received um, as a woman, which was incredibly difficult. Uh, It it still has its challenges today, but especially in the 20th century, just um, an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. So yeah, I think she's fascinating as a person, her tenacity, what she was able to accomplish as a scholar, and then the actual substance that she generated through that process is of course the most important thing and why she's so interesting and why we're talking about her today. Um so yeah, I'm happy to talk about any of those things.
1: <laughs> so she wasn't trained necessarily as an economist or her degree is not in economics, is that correct?
0: That's right. Um she I think she was reading what we would today recognize as economics and thinking in an economic way from early in her career because she was always interested in what we would now call political economy or constitutional political economy and that set of questions but yeah she was studying political science so her undergraduate major which nobody in her life wanted her to even bother getting uh was in political science and her uh graduate work was in political science as well
1: and kind of an uphill battle the whole time
0: yeah yeah she like an uphill battle in so many ways personally and professionally um her first husband who she wound up separating from did not want her to pursue graduate work at all um there were detractors on the faculty of ucla who also uh either weren't interested in her or weren't interested in women in graduate work. So she actually initially had wanted to enter the economics program for her graduate work at UCLA. But they had admitted uh, four women to that program the year before and decided that they hadn't done well enough. So whether that's accurate, you know, maybe they really were women who happened to struggle with the material, Or maybe this was just the discomfort of the other students and the faculty not being able yet to recognize capabilities when they saw them in an unfamiliar package, specifically when they saw them in a woman instead of in a man. Um, But maybe it worked out for the better for her because she wound up because of that rejection from economics going into the graduate program and political science which is where you know, in that political science program at UCLA, that's where she got a lot of her big ideas. And that's also where she found Vincent Ostrom, who would go on to be her, uh, her greatest co-author as well as um, her husband. So uh, a professionally and personally important moment in her life.
1: Well, he sounds definitely like an upgrade from the first husband.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He does sound like a major upgrade. Yeah. And she even, her first husband, she'd even put through law school, but he just didn't want to return the favor.
1: Wow. So I find her so inspiring in so many ways, you know, great lessons all the way around about how to live your professional life, but also how to live your personal life if somebody is not supporting you and dragging you down pull an ostrom yeah
0: <laughs> and this is something i've said before so i apologize if it um doesn't sound new but just how many of us if we were in that situation're being told no by the faculty we're being told no by the husband we're being told no by um our parents or her- you know, her mother said she didn't really see any purpose she, in women pursuing higher education um, if they were just gonna wind up being homemakers anyway was kind of her attitude. So you're being told no by everybody. How many of us would still proceed? You know, if I'm honestly introspecting, I'm not sure that I would overcome all of those barriers. Um, so the fact that she, I don't know if there was part of her who already knew that she just had something so great to contribute. Uh, I mean, this is maybe even a tangential issue that we don't want to get into too much. But just where does that fire come from? Is it that she saw something different about the world? Of course, that's what a lot of her work winds up being about. The fact that she views the world so differently than than other social scientists at that time. Um, but just, I, I think that tenacity is a great inspiration.
1: Yeah. And, you know. In, in the face of all of the naysayers, she went on not just to win the highest prize in the field of economics, but also to win the highest prize in political science.
0: Yeah, I think she probably won just about any prize in political science, <laughs> but yeah, she, she won the highest prizes. Um, I apologize for not knowing how to pronounce it correctly, so this might be wrong, but the Skype prize, and she won the Riker prize. Um, And then, of course, she won the Nobel Prize in economics, which, to um, the great disciplinary shame of the economics profession, many economists came out and said, Well, what, you know, who is this? So, the first woman that we elevated within economics to that top position in the discipline uh, was not even really an economist, formally speaking. Um, Of course, in terms of her ideas, because she was using that. Um, that logic of choice. She was instrumental in developing the public choice framework. She very much thought about um, choice making and rule building under conditions of scarcity, which is a very economic way of thinking. So like, I would argue that she was very much an economist, I suspect you would probably argue the same. Um, but many in the discipline, as you know, see it differently.
1: Yeah. And one of the questions I, I often ask my guests, Is you know what is one of the most understood or or sorry what are what are one of the most misunderstood ideas or even one of the most underrated ideas of a scholar? But in terms of underrated ideas, you could pretty much point to her entire body of work and say, (laughs) well, she won the Nobel Prize, but you know she is really underrated as an economist.
0: Yeah, I agree. And as a social scientist, and I think there's a unfortunate trend in the social sciences, where anything that doesn't fit what's perceived to be the most scientifically sophisticated method of the day, is kind of thrown out because it doesn't meet those methodological standards. But I think a more important question to ask is, how much does this body of work, the set of frameworks, the set of ideas, how much do they help us understand the world? We should be looking for understanding and insight as our primary criteria for what makes a, a body of work worth engaging with and studying. And I think the fact that what Eleanor Ostrom pulled off is both different and extraordinarily difficult because she worked with so many different sets of ideas and methods, and she worked with people from across the disciplinary spectrum, um, which is often encouraged in rhetoric, but difficult to pull off within the confines of an actual academic environment, because so much of the emphasis within academic environments is on promotion and tenure according to the standards of a particular department. But she engaged in genuine interdisciplinary work. Even in her dissertation, when she was working on her graduate study, she had people from not just across the social sciences, but even the natural sciences, geologists, because she was trying to study the management of water resources. And she saw the uh, the, the scientific, you know, the, the geologic properties of that as important to understanding the issue, just as much as the human properties. I think too often the tendency is to say, since it's outside of my discipline, narrowly defined, I'm not gonna deal with that aspect of the problem. Mm -hmm. But her view was that we need to triangulate and, but but not just (laughs) in finding three ways to look at the issue, but finding as many ways as possible to look at the issue. But she also acknowledged, you know, we're humans, we're flawed, we have limited cognitive capabilities, and so we can't necessarily do all that ourselves. So we have to build teams and find ways to work with people who have different bodies of knowledge, different expertise than we do. So of course, that was a big motivation behind her and Vincent's founding of the Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at IU Bloomington.
1: And that workshop has quite a wonderful on like, Long-lasting reputation of being an amazing place to to study social issues, um, yeah,
0: still functioning and doing great work today. You, can, I don't know if they're, um, I, I'm not sure if next semester they'll be continuing to do the online seminars. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, they started taking the workshop, which is the kind of the nickname for the main seminar that's held there, and they put it online so that anybody around the world could attend, which is very, uh, very in sync with their uh, cosmopolitan focus, their focus on trying to understand how, you know, the great diversity of ways that people around the world could potentially approach solving problems rather than getting locked into just one perspective. So I definitely would encourage anybody to check it out.
1: I did not know that they made all of that available online. I'm, I, for one, I'm certainly going to check that out.
0: Yeah, it's incredible.
1: Uh, one of the things I'm glad you brought up was uh, her methods, or, or not just one method that she you know touted this approach to studying the world around us that involves a mixture of multiple different methods. Can you speak a little bit about that and and why that might be a very useful approach to to understanding a wide assortment of problems?
0: Yeah, so one example of a research project that her team uh, tackled is the question of deforestation. So of course, this has been an issue that many, many people have been concerned about around the world in the past several decades, especially. And so she wanted to understand why is it that nationalization of forests. So, bringing forests under the protection of federal governments hasn't actually always been good for greening. And one of the things she found when she went into some of those areas is that the people, sometimes Indigenous communities who were living there, had previously developed systems, mechanisms for ensuring the health of that forest and ensuring that they weren't um, you know taking down too much old growth forest and and not destroying the resource faster than it could replenish because their continued livelihood depended on it so they had not only the the knowledge of the immediate circumstances but they also had this incredibly strong incentive because their livelihood gets destroyed and that's a commonality across many different kind of common pool resource environments whether we're talking about the ocean fish populations um access to water, to be able to farm, you know, whenever you have this resource where there's a very strong connection to the local population, there's a very strong incentive to steward it. But one of the um, sets of tools that she used in trying to understand that um, problem of deforestation was actually visiting. So talking to people who live there doing direct observation um, of their interactions with the forest and with the policy. And at the other end of the spectrum, she would use things like satellite imagery to try to look at the actual um, greening or lack of greening of those forest areas. So, one of the cool things about that is satellite imagery is not a tool that you could necessarily use for every problem in the social sciences. But this particular problem, since we're able to observe how green a forest is from the sky in a way we can't necessarily from the ground, and we can do that in a comprehensive way, it just opens itself up to that kind of research. So I I think what's interesting about that example is it shows the value of letting the question drive the method you choose, rather than letting the method you choose limit what questions you can ask. So for her, the question always came first. We see the problem in the world. We get curious about how it is that people are tackling that problem and finding ways to negotiate with each other to to bring about a resolution. And that is the point of interest. And then we ask, okay, so what is, can we use large statistical analysis? Can we um, understand the, the history of the evolution of the policies or whether those are legal or cultural? Can we understand Um, Can we use field work to talk to people to understand their rulemaking processes? Can we use satellite imagery? When she was studying police safety, she uh, used um, a tool that actually helped her measure how rough the roads were to understand um, how well different local communities were dealing with infrastructure projects. So just the question coming first and then any kind of tool we can use that's going to give us some insight into that problem. We're going to use it. It's not off the table.
1: So a big theme of her work, we mentioned a couple uh, governing kind of common pool resources and the provision of what we might call public goods. And so the water supply and forests would be examples of of governing those common pool resources. The policing is more of an example of the local public goods. the word polycentricity is something that comes up a lot in Ostrom's yep. work. And for those who are not familiar, can you talk a little bit about what that is, what it means, and kind of how she uh, viewed the, you know, overlapping nature of different uh, decision-making structures?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because it's a complex phenomena. It's... um. I think many people very understandably find it kind of counterintuitive how something like a polycentric system could actually result in coherent patterns of order and governance. But the, so the core definition of polycentricity is multiple centers of authority interacting with each other within a shared system of rules. And then for the Ostroms, a big reason for their emphasis on that concept is that they thought those interactions, so whether they are, they are competition between those centers of authority, cooperation between those different centers of authority or um, conflict, even they they thought conflict even could um, generate useful information um, and be a beneficial source, cause that's also like competition. That's also a way of challenging each other except we're challenging each other using our voices instead of challenging each other by um, opting into one like a public school versus a private school something like that, that kind of competition. But yeah. so these different kinds of interactions are a way to govern and be able to solve problems in a way that uh, can be more uniquely tailored. To individual communities, rather than the opposite of polycentricity, which is a monocentric system, where power is originating from one single source, usually a source very high in the structure of authority, and trying to always solve problems from that center of power. So uh, another way to think about it is it's about sharing power from the ground up rather than power always coming from the top down.
1: That's interesting and I I can see how that can be difficult for some people to kind of wrap their heads around cuz it sounds a bit, you know, messy. It sounds it's, a bit yeah. unstructured.
0: It's difficult to visualize. Um one kind of uh metaphor or illustration that they offered, by they I mean Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom, is the idea of the crazy quilt. So have you ever seen a crazy quilt?
1: No, I don't know.
0: It's it has an interesting tradition. So it's something that is often um, crafted, created um, within poorer communities because so if you think of a quilt that has like an elaborate, pretty design, what that means is that you have to have like the exact right amounts of fabric and you have to have enough fabric that you can afford to waste
1: mm-hmm.
0: because you ha- you're you cutting exactly what you want out of it. A crazy quilt is using whatever scrap is available and finding a way to fit it together. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these different pieces that all, you know, originated from somewhere different. They, you know, came to being for a different reason. They maybe are coming from a lot of different places, but you find a way to fit them together, rearrange, um, and situate them to make a complete quilt. So then you can take all the little scraps left over from making clothes, or you know whatever it is that you um, were starting with, and you get a, a now kind of another use out of it. So this idea of things coming to fit together and it looks kind of chaotic but it still serves this overarching purpose. It comes together into this blanket which you can use to to warm and cover yourself is um was was a metaphor they used. But it, but it looks like it looks wild. If you didn't know like the history of all those pieces, why they're the shape they are, it would just look like chaos. Like somebody had, you know, Jackson Pollock this quilt out of, <laughs> you know, and you might think it's for no reason, but so that idea that it can look chaotic, but that's because every single piece has its own purpose. So, and when we're talking about human communities, we're talking about, you know, people and the groups they form existing for their own reasons and for their own purposes, rather than simply as means to somebody else's end. And so that is a lot of, even when we're not aware of it, that's a lot of what we get when we look for top-down types of efficiency. Mm -hmm. We get somebody at the top setting a goal that then everybody else in that society is made to adjust their plans to meet that person's goal. Mm -hmm. In a polycentric system, you can get this um, coexistence of a huge variety of different plans and purposes that all can function simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's about individual's being able to self govern within their communities in order to create the kind of society they want, rather than having to fit into some kind of average. And like the, the cliche expression, um, if you try to satisfy everybody, you'll wind up satisfying. No one Mm -hmm. is I think very appropriate in this situation. So if we try to create a system of government where we're trying to satisfy Everybody's needs across a very diverse population with diverse plans and purposes, you're going to wind up frustrating all the people in that system quite a lot. Polycentricity is a way to still accomplish all the same objectives, address the same kinds of problems that that larger system might. But since you can have many different solutions operating simultaneously, mm-hmm. like think about the problem of healthcare. Mm-hmm. We have we have private people work, you know, private organizations and firms like, um like. Doctor's offices, um, groups like Weight Watchers, and not saying that their particular strategy or goal is a good one, but just that they're, you know, a kind of group that's working for health. Um, You have, you know, the FDA, you have, you know, all these different kinds of organizations, they can all work towards the same goal of contributing to human health simultaneously. We don't have to just have one or the other. Now there's a risk once we bring large organizations like the FDA that are given oversight over the others into that system that we can shut down some of the activity and some of what could be generated from the ground up through that polycentric system. But I think it still illustrates the fact that we can have organizations operating at multiple scales and pursuing different strategies all at the same time. They don't need a central coordinator to all effectively be working towards the same goal. So it, it and this kind of idea for those who are familiar with um, the market process, it might sound like a similar kind of logic and it is very much inspired. So it's like much in the same way that individuals interacting with each other through the market, their buying and selling behavior can wind up generating market outcomes um, that were not the intention of any one individual in that system, but they're emerging through this process of interactions. Mm -hmm. polycentricity is kind of a way of thinking of governance and rules in the same kind of way we can get coherent systems of rules Mm -hmm. um, without needing to have the single top down.
1: Because you have the contestability of different groups, you have the local knowledge of the unique needs of that community. Um, Very fascinating. Uh, One of the things that uh, when you were talking made me think a little bit about, you know, this seems like an interesting model that we could apply to understand a lot of modern social problems, right? Um, One thing that just comes to mind is that, you know, I am surprised that her work on community policing has not been more widely picked Mm. up on given a lot of the common uh, you know, criminal justice reform. You know, push for that. That that we, a lot of those conversations surrounding criminal justice reform that we hear today. Um, can you talk a little bit about that particular project and maybe what lessons we might be able to draw from that? I know you do have a paper on on that particular project.
0: Yeah, it's a paper I wrote with Peter Betke and Leah Palagashvili, um, who are. Uh, both my colleagues at the Mercatus Center in different capacities. um, And we were interested in this question as well. Obviously there's enormous dissatisfaction and justified dissatisfaction with policing in America right now. Um, And so Eleanor Ostrom, you know, she was interested in this question as well, so it's not a new dis- dissatisfaction. I think it's waxed and waned and, and changed in its nature over time, but there was you know, dissatisfaction in the <laughs> 60s as well. Um, and so one of the things that she was interested in is at the time there was a movement within political administration to try to make police departments more efficient by consolidating them.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and this is something that we've seen kind of a general trend throughout the 20th century in administrative services, which is that people are often generally dissatisfied with the way different government programs are administered
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and, but they don't know how to fix it. And so one of the strategies that um, comes to mind often for many people is, well, We think these things are not producing that much, that they're extraordinarily expensive. How do we fix that? So they look to cost cutting and try to make them more efficient by reducing um, redundancies, unnecessary costs, by finding the one most quote unquote efficient ways to do things and getting everybody to kind of fall in line with that strategy. One idea that Eleanor Ostrom's work challenges is... The very definition of efficiency. What does it mean to have an efficient program? Um, oftentimes when we do policy analysis and, and and try to look at how efficient a program is being, we're importing a very technocratic definition of efficiency. So essentially the person doing the research study is deciding what counts as efficient.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, since Eleanor Ostrom was committed to democracy in the sense of ultimate power residing with individuals. So the people as their own sovereigns rather than some other authority being sovereign over them. For her, what it would mean for a police department to be quote unquote efficient would be that it is serving that community well. Mm -hmm. So that it is meeting the standards that are set by that community for what kind of public safety they find it worth to invest in for what kind of activities they think their police should be engaging in and in general do they find those police activities to be making their communities feel safer or not and so she said it you know if, if we are going to be committed to democracy to individuals deciding when it is worth it to them to give some of their power to a governmental organization, then we need to be asking people, do they feel like this is making them safer or not? Are they more satisfied or less satisfied with these police services? And that method has its own imperfections. All methods have their own imperfections. But one of the things she found was that the consolidated departments that were being consolidated in the name of, def- of efficiency, they were actually Um, further disconnecting police from their communities. So police no longer necessarily lived in or were that familiar with the individual neighborhoods that they were policing because they might live, you know, if you consolidate a city like Indianapolis or Chicago, maybe they live on the other side of the city. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything about what's going on in a particular neighborhood, a particular community. This means, you know, one of the examples that she gave in her work was you have, you know, teenage vandalism, something like that, or a teenager getting drunk, something like that? Do you take them into the precinct or do you just take them home? You know, if you live in that community, if you're familiar with that environment, you might be more willing to just take them home. That's one more person now who is not in the prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are from the other side of the city or you don't understand what that community's priorities are, maybe you just follow the policy. You take them into the precinct. Um, So I think that kind of way of thinking about policing as the, you know, first of all, the question is, you know, what is the purpose of policing? Mm -hmm. So if it is to be safe and for a particular community to feel safe, that that's just going to really change your priorities. Mm -hmm. And so this project that Pete and Leah and I did, we asked kind of, you know, if, if there, And I do think the idea of community policing is attractive to many people. Mm-hmm. So if there's this kind of general understanding that that would be something good, why are we not getting it? Um, so one of the things we found when we started to look into that question of why community policing um, was not really in practice, despite the fact that it, it sounds like such a good idea, um, theoretically, is that especially... Um, Post 9/11, there has been just such a huge um, shift in police resources towards combating terrorism. And before that, through the War on Drugs, there was a there originated from that kind of policy program a great shift in resources where federal authorities like the DEA were really trying to redirect local police departments towards combating the war on drugs. So now you have the police officer stuck in the middle and where does their greatest priority lie? Does it lie to the people or does it lie with the federal, you know, the distant federal government? Those programs interjected a huge amount of money in drawing police attention towards the priorities of the federal government. That is um, in the, like in a positive sense like just being analytical about the definitions um that is very non-democratic because it is shifting the principle in that principal agent relationship is no longer the citizen overseeing the police it's now the federal the distant federal government overseeing the police and changing their priorities so it's very difficult to have um a system of community policing within that kind of environment
1: That is, uh, incentives matter, as we know, as economists.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, incentives matter. And I think, you know, one of the amazing insights that Eleanor Ostrom's work brings to trying to understand how that plays out is she really emphasized needing to get a full understanding of the environment and the different ways that individuals interacted with each other and with that environment and how that would change their strategies and their capabilities just you know just what was what it was going to be possible for them to accomplish what was what was the feasible set of policy alternatives that they kind of had to work within um and that you know that's one of the dangers of taking the authority over a problem that it's fundamentally a local or community problem mm-hmm. and getting a lot of regulation or intervention at the federal level is that you really interfere with the possibility of that community to respond to use their local knowledge to use their insights and um and their priorities to respond and you distort the incentive for them to do so in the first place so one like one of the ideas they emphasized is that the you know there are different appropriate scales of Mm. action for different problems Mm. So something like garbage collection is a local issue. It just, it doesn't really make sense to, to operate at a higher level. But they also emphasize that that is not a problem that can be solved by an outside expert. People need to actually discover what the most appropriate scale for problem solving is. So that's also one of the arguments that they put on the table for why we should start from the ground up because uh-huh. people can always cooperate across larger and larger populations if you start from the ground up. But if you presume from the beginning that the best way to solve the problem is gonna be from the top down, then you're just stuck there. You don't get the opportunity for the the smaller scale solutions to emerge.
1: So it's hard to scale it back if that is your starting point. Yep. One of the things I really like that you mentioned in your chapter on Eleanor Ostrom is that institutions can be thought of as including shared strategies that emerge, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that kind of captures this community-based, discussion-based kind of democratic process. Um, I think that that's a beautiful way to kind of think about it.
0: Yeah, that comes from a really important piece by Eleanor Ostrom and Susan Crawford called A Grammar of Institutions. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But so that's a, for anybody who's interested in this research, that's a really important kind of exposition of how it is that Eleanor Ostrom thinks about institutional environments. And I think that idea of shared strategies is also such an important point of emphasis that can be lost in the social sciences so just that that it's that individual participation component Mm -hmm. but not in like an individualist atomistic sense in a in an interactive people-oriented sense so especially later in their careers um and particularly vincent but eleanor also um talked a lot about language and the fact that like the very fact that you and I are communicating right now and that presumably what you're understanding is is something close to what I'm saying, you know, it might not be exactly, you know, maybe not hearing exactly what I'm intending. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the nature of all human communication. But there's so much shared understanding that underlies our ability to communicate with each other it's not just in the words we're using, it's in the way we're using them. Um, the, you know, the shared history and context that that you and I and everybody who would find this podcast interesting to listen to, um, you know, might have in our backgrounds. And so that idea of shared understanding
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and what is enabled by shared understanding was very interesting to her. And so that's like in her Nobel Prize address, she really emphasized this question of trust and the kind of problem solving that individual communities can engage in when they live in an environment where trust is generally high. Um, You know, if you are not constantly expecting people to be out to get you, it's a lot easier to cooperate with them. Um, so now that doesn't mean that you necessarily won't need any enforcement mechanisms. Um, in her, in Eleanor Ostrom's book *Governing the Commons*, which is generally considered one of her major treatises on this idea of um, self-governance and problem-solving to address common pool resource problems, she talks about. Uh, farmers who are creating a system of of rules around access to water um, for an irrigation system. And the fact that these farmers are able to find a way to build an enforcement mechanism into access to the institution, and specifically what they do, is that they allow people to kind of open the gate to allow water onto their farmland in a geographically sequential order. So your neighbor's turn to open the gate is always right before or after yours, which means that there is somebody out there watching to see if you've left the gate open for longer than you're supposed to or opened it earlier than you're supposed to. So whenever you can get rules that have those kind of self-enforcing properties, and the fact that that's something um, that people have the capacity to devise is such an important part of her research program. Like one of her criticisms of the, uh, so she studied um, a lot of game theory, but her criticism of some of that game theory, like of the prisoner's dilemma, which is that, okay, so we're you know, the prisoner's dilemma is A game where you want, I won't go through the whole thing, but you Mm -hmm. wind up essentially in an inefficient outcome because everybody's incentive is to protect themselves within that environment. So one of Eleanor Ostrom's criticism of drawing policy implications from that is that in the real world, people decide what the rules of the game are. They're not stuck with the rules of the game they're given. They can change them if something's not working. So we're not trapped in the rules. We create the rules. So that doesn't mean we create them out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, the historical context that we're dealt matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that human capacity to change our own circumstances um, was a big implication she derived from her work. And that's why in her Nobel Prize address, she concludes with this idea that policy should be a lot less oriented on fixing problems for others and a lot more oriented on creating environments where people can solve problems for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because then you allow those people to all bring their best to the table instead of saying, Hey, why don't you just take a back seat and let the experts solve it?
1: And polycentricity is that her suggestion for the type of environment that might facilitate this problem-solving?
0: I mean, that a a polycentric environment is essential to having. It's almost a precondition to be able to have this kind of um, problem-solving because if you have power concentrated among just one group or even one individual in that society, then you've, like totally destroyed the capacity of individuals to meaningfully participate in that problem solving process. So polycentricity is absolutely essential, and not just any polycentricity, one in which power is genuinely vested with the people. So I guess I guess by not just any polycentricity, what I really meant was not just any system of decentralization. Mm-hmm. So, it's not just about disempowering the federal government. It's about empowering people.
1: Ostrom's work really highlights how creative human beings can be.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: One thing that I wanted to bring up, and we're we're almost out of time, so this might be a big question to kind of end on. Um, but one of the major concerns of a lot of people today would be climate change, and mm-hmm. and is there any way we can kind of use Eleanor Ostrom's framework and lens to kind of understand, you know, what can we do to deal with such a global scale? major issue?
0: Yeah, this question comes up a lot um, whenever you put polycentricity on the table, because I think it's easier for people to see, okay, I get my why we might want uh, more community responsiveness in police services. I get why um, when it comes to dealing with a common situation, it would be better for the individuals there to govern. But how can you ever expect a polycentric system to deal with a global solution? And Eleanor Ostrom wrote several um, really great pieces on this uh, kind of towards the end of her career. And, and I, think it's, I think it's important to deal with this material because it also raises another issue that she emphasized in her scholarship that we haven't necessarily talked about much yet, which is that she was very invested in this idea of public private partnership. So the uh-huh. idea that we didn't have to um, kind of set up stake in one camp or another, either for private solutions or for public solutions, uh-huh. we could think about um, ways to try to bring up the best in all of those organizational types. And uh-huh. so one of the um, issues that she often brought up with respect to climate change is that coming to global accord is extraordinarily costly and politically unlikely. So if you say, well, the scale of climate change is that it's a global problem and therefore it can only be resolved through a global solution, then you've just handcuffed yourself. You're sitting around waiting for some kind of global governing body to get the entire population of the planet or at, at least all of the elites in that group on board with one solution. Um, but if you recognize the polycentric character of the problem, which is that we can have that global conversation, but simultaneously we if we don't disempower people, we can have action taking place at smaller scales and local scales as well then we can actually get a much more effective and, and much more likely to um, actually make a difference kind of solution to the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: like one of her observations was, the um, even though the problem is global, a lot of the activities that cause it are local. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a highly polluting factory is a problem for climate change, but it's also a problem for the people who live right next to it. So if you enable localities to also get involved with environmental questions, if you enable, if you if you encourage people to feel like there's something that they could do in their community that would make a difference, they have the incentive to do so because they don't want to live next to the factory. And they also have the information on, okay, how is, you know, That They have the information about the local context that's going to enable them to negotiate and maybe come up with a possible solution um, with that factory owner, that group of people who work there, who presumably want to keep their jobs. And, Uh you know, they can come up with a mutually agreeable solution much more effectively than, you know, sitting in uh, Texas waiting for somebody in Paris to solve the problem.
1: Shared Strategies.
0: Yes, they they come up, they can come up with shared strategies so that even when the problem is global, it often is going to take action at multiple scales to truly address. So, and I think that like the democratic component of that, that if you put so much emphasis on the global solution and so much emphasis on this idea that it needs to be resolved at that scale, people might give up. So both Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom were interested in this question of what are the conditions under which people are going to feel like it's possible for them to contribute democratically and possible for them to contribute to problem solving. And if you emphasize so much the global, then people can begin to feel really disempowered at the local level.
1: This conversation is so fascinating, but we are running out of time. So if I had to ask you... You know, what are the big takeaways that we want to, you know, what are the big picture ideas that we walk away from when we read Eleanor Ostrom's work?
0: I think, I mean, it, it's so hard to cover her body of work in such a short period of time. So I, I know that there are important things that we haven't gotten to. Mm-hmm. Um, big takeaways. One, the importance of self-governance and that self-governance can work to build a coherent order. So your individual civic participation in coming up with rules and enforcing rules within your community um, matters. To the importance of using multiple methods to understand what's happening in human communities. And I talked about multiple methods already, but one thing I didn't really emphasize is how much investment she put into field work Mm -hmm. and archival historical work and how important she saw um, that that process of actually talking to and hearing from people, whether that's in conversation or in history books, how important of a method that was and a method that when we're talking about social issues is gonna be important for kind of every question and can never be left out. So. Um, the importance of both working together across methods and of doing field work. And then I think the last uh, big insight I would say is just, again, that um, idea from her Nobel Prize address on empowering people to bring their creativity and their problem-solving abilities forward and not leaning so much into what is frankly Um, an elitist view that um, scientific experts are always going to be the best at solving human problems. Um, We need to reject that in favor of policies that allow people to bring their best forward um, as individuals and as communities.
1: Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Jamie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, for those who are interested in learning more about Ostrom's work, there is an excellent list of of sources at the end of Jamie's chapter in the Essential uh, Women of Liberty book. Thank you so much, Jamie.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Rosie.
1: You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.